0: You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2009. Today's episode is titled, The Source of Business Wisdom. An organization is two or more people who have come together to accomplish a mission. In the process of fulfilling its mission, an organization must make decisions of all types. These decisions involve, for example, sales, marketing, product development, finance, personnel, operations, and so forth. Some would argue that the Bible does not address business and or organizational matters. They contend that the Bible is the story of Christ and his work of redemption, and let there be no doubt about the truth of that statement. In addition to the story of redemption, however, the Bible is the best source of revelation we have about God, his character, nature, creation, and purpose. Since God created the universe, only God can tell us why he created it, what he wants us to do, and how he wants us to do it. The Bible, therefore, is our best source of revelation about living and working in God's universe. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message, the kingdom and the church.
1: I am uh, delighted to be with you and want to bless you in the name of the Lord and want to pray before we get started. I know you stay in a state of of constant prayer and that's very good, but sometimes it's good just to to pause and just to uh, kind of recollect our thoughts and... And be sure that we're tuned in to what God is saying to us. Father, we just want to thank you so much for your love. Yes. And Lord, as we look at this beautiful day, we're reminded of the radiance of your glory, the magnificence of your Son, and the wonder of your creation. And Father, we're here today to hear your voice, and we're here to hear you speak through others. So Lord, as we talk together, as we, as we think together, as we process together... Lord, would you speak to us and give us the grace to hear and give us the heart to obey? So, Father, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Ray asked me to say a few words about uh, the kingdom and the church. I assume that's kind of been your theme over the last two days. So let's just, let me just be sure we all kind of have some similar definitions. Uh, I'm going to talk about the kingdom as the rule and reign of God. Is that okay with you guys? That's a fair Great. definition? Yes. Kingdom is the rule and reign of God. And I'm going to talk about the church as the universal church, not so much the local church. Certainly a lot of you guys are pastors. You, have, you are responsible for local churches, and I bless you, and that's a, it's a very, very challenging job that you have. But we want to talk more about the universal church today. Uh, and let's just kind of contextualize things uh, because I do want to drive you to some, some recommendations at the end. But I've got to set, set this up for you. Uh, let's go back to, to the question of why are we here. Very fundamental question. We all know the answer to that is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. We are here to rule. Now, I grew up Baptist. How many of you all grew up Baptist? Okay, I grew up Baptist, and I didn't get that growing up. Now, I don't know what I missed. Maybe it was taught, and I just didn't get it, but I didn't get it. I thought I thought Christianity was all about about evangelism. It's all about going to church on Monday, showing up for visitation on. Excuse me. to church on Sunday, showing up for visitation Monday night, going to church on Wednesday, and you know how many people got baptized each Sunday night. I thought that's what it was all about. I didn't understand this whole idea that God wanted us to bring His rule and reign onto this planet. Amen. So that's that's kind of been a revelation I've come to over the last twenty years. Largely by virtue of the influence of Dennis Peacock, who my view is a mentor and a close friend of mine. We're also golf buddies, so when I get around golf courses, I can't help but think about Dennis. We've spent a lot of time on the golf courses talking theology. You know, you can learn a lot of things about God by by playing golf and talking theology. So Dennis has been very helpful in helping me understand the kingdom. So, all right, we understand we're here to rule God's creation. Then we have this thing called sin that shows up in Genesis 3. And now what that does is impedes our ability to rule. So now we, we have this, this, this block, this, this barrier to us doing what we were put here to do well. So what happened then was we have now the whole story of Jesus come unfolding. And the cross and the salvation that we know is by grace through faith, faith in him. And so that that begs the question, what's the purpose of this salvation? Is it just to deal with the sin issue? Or is it something more than that? And I would like to suggest to you that the purpose of salvation is to deal with the sin problem in me enough that I can do what God created me to do. Is that a fair fair understanding? I think that's really what the scriptures are telling us, is that God created us for good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do? That's Ephesians two ten. That comes after Ephesians two eight, which we all know well. For by grace you saved through faith. So we have to. Re- I, sometimes I, f- I feel like we have forgotten that two ten is there. We teach Ephesians two eight and we leave off Ephesians two ten. Ephesians two ten is about us doing the things that we were created to do. So that's really the game. Now. So if that's the game and what we're trying to do is to go out to our spheres of influence and touch people and bring them to Christ to release them to do what they're called to do, to bring the ruling grain of God to their lives and their spheres of influence, then the vehicle, the primary vehicle for us to do this with is the church. Would everybody agree to that? The church is the primary training vehicle? Okay, It is, in fact, you know, like we said earlier, the church is the pillar and ground of truth. And what do I need to live anything in life, to do anything in life? I need truth. I need truth to be a good husband. I need truth to be a good parent. I need truth to be a good businessman. I need truth to be a good politician, to be a good teacher. Whatever I am doing in life, I need truth. Truth is the only thing that enables me to function well in God's universe. Remember this, if God made the universe, he made all the rules. So if I'm going to function well in his universe, I have to follow his rules. And if there's any one thing we learn from the Old Testament, we learn that if we don't follow God's rules, it leads to economic and political calamity. Mm -hmm. You see that with the nation of Israel. They got judged economically and politically for their disobedience. They didn't follow God's rules. Well, those rules of God are not only, quote, religious rules, and I hate to use that term. The rules of God apply to everything. The rules of God apply to science. They apply to how to teach, how to conduct business, how to rule ourselves as a people, how to do, you know, medicine. The the rules of God are in every area of life, and so we've got to discover those rules. And my thesis is, it is the job of the church, the charge of the church, to uncover all of these rules of God and begin to teach them to all of us. So that we can go and do whatever our specific assignments might be. Okay, so is everybody on board that that's that's the game we should be in? Okay, so the question is, how effective is the church at doing that? Okay, and I'm talking broadly here. One one way to kind of gauge that would be some, some data. I'm trained as a scientist, so i think in terms of empirical studies i value empirical studies do you guys value empirical studies everybody value that are you guys following willow creek are all of you following willow creek have you got the latest book called follow me all right what i've done here is i over the last few weeks uh ray called me in the midst of my study of the book of follow me uh we i got this book at my la- at last elders meeting because we sent one of our staff pastors up to their conference to get and to really understand what's going on with their research so he brought back a whole case of books and all the elders got one and i started digging into it and so what i've done for you today is i prepared some little study guides for you that might be helpful to you as you look at this book and really i'm trying to understand what they concluded and why they concluded it that's what i was trying to get to and, and ultimately trying to understand how that applies to the church where i'm an elder so we want to figure out, what are we doing wrong? How can we improve our ability to really train people and equip people to go do what they're called to do? That's the agenda I'm driving for. All right, now, Willow Creek categorized the people in their church into five categories. Now, this is important. The first category is, is those that are far from Christ. Those almost never showed up at the church. You know, you have to go out and, and touch those. Those that actually showed up in the church were in one of four categories. They were either exploring Christ, growing in Christ, close to Christ, or Christ-centered. Those that are exploring Christ are not Christians, but they're curious. They're looking, trying to trying to know something about what Christ is all about. Those that are growing in Christ have made a profession of faith and are now beginning to grow in understanding what that means. Those that are close to Christ have actually moved into some level of intimacy with christ and those that are christ-centered are supposed to be the most committed disciples of jesus christ i've added to their own descriptions on there so i'm going to explain to you what they said and what i've added now you see movement number one you all see movement number one okay that's now you see i put a little descriptor there called evangelism that's where evangelism is we are going to the people that are unsaved and we're introducing them to christ and are accepting christ And they're moving to growing in Christ. Then movement number two is you're taking people that have accepted Christ, and now you're moving them into a training phase. You know, training is where now I'm beginning to learn new habits. How many of you have played golf? Anybody play golf? Okay, how many of you have a problem with a slice? Okay, Okay. now, if I'm going to help you fix that problem with your slice, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to teach you to hook it. Okay, Because you've got some bad habits with your muscles. Your muscle memory is not working well for you, so I've got to give you some new muscle memory. I have to retrain your muscles. That's what training is. So I, we'll take you on the range, and we'll show you how to hook the ball. So what we're trying to do is break bad habits and build new habits. And eventually, as you learn to hook the ball, eventually I'll show you how to hit it straight. But the whole point of all of that is to retrain your muscles, well, see, that's what movement two is all about, is, is taking people that have accepted Christ and now retraining them to now think and function like Christians. And now the last movement is those that have had enough training now to where they can do it, now they move into a deeper level of, of intimacy with God. Okay, so that's basically the movements that they identified. Now, under, you'll see underneath there, I put some other little categories. These come from Dennis Peacock, my mentor. Now, this is the way he defines discipleship. And I just thought this was this an was interesting correlation, so I put it there for you. You see, somebody that's exploring Christ is unconscious of their incompetency. See, they are incompetent because they don't know the rules of God's universe. That's what makes them incompetent. And so they're unconscious of it. They just know something's not right, I don't know what's going on here, I, I, I want to hear about this Christ thing, and so they go to church. So we introduce them to Christ. The Holy Spirit touches them. And by the way, that's the only way you make the movement. It's called regeneration. It's a supernatural act of God, which means that every, every person that professes Christ has, been, has had a supernatural act in their life. Okay, So movement number one takes them now to growing in Christ. Okay, At this point, they become conscious that they are incompetent. Now, whether they do anything about it or not is another matter. But now I'm aware. I don't have a clue. I, I need help. So if they are willing to engage, and if we as church leaders are good enough at drawing them into the next movement, then we put them into training. And in training is where you are consciously working on being competent. If I have you on the driving range and I'm working to get rid of that slice, I'm working consciously and you're working consciously to build new muscle memories. That's what we're after. So when we, we take the backswing here, instead of you coming over the top, I'm trying to have you come inside so you will r- rotate properly and be square when you hit the ball and hit the ball straight instead of hitting it off to the right. So I have to, we consciously work on putting competency into your golf swing. Once you've got the habit, you don't have to think about it anymore, don't you? Once something has become a habit, if you practice that golf swing enough, it will eventually become a habit. And you won't have to think about it. And now you have become unconsciously competent. You have it's built into you, it's wired into you how to function and do that particular task in God's universe correctly. So that's the process we're trying to take people through is taking them from unconsciously incompetent to unconsciously competent. So that's I think that's a great description of it. Now, if you look down the left hand column, you see four categories. Spiritual beliefs and attitudes, church activities, personal spiritual practices, spiritual activities with others. You see that? Okay. What what they did is over the last four years, they have surveyed almost 500 churches and nearly 150,000 church members to try to understand what's facilitating your growth through this process. Wherever you are in the process, how did you get there? And so what they did is they looked at 50 factors that they thought were catalysts for growth and maturity in Christ. And what you see under here, under each of these movements, is you see the the ones that were most prominently noted by the respondents. And the ones that that are bold and numbered are the top five. So, for example, in the movement going from exploring Christ to growing in Christ... The most significant factor was understanding salvation by grace. The second most significant factor was the Trinity. Now, that's a little bit of a surprise to me, but that was the second most significant factor. The third one was serving the church. Fourthly was prayer to seek guidance, and fifth is reflection on Scripture. So those are the top five, and you see the others listed there were also contributing catalysts so that's the movement one now you go to the middle category movement two is going from growing in christ to close to christ the top factor there was getting a revelation that god is personal the god is individual god cares about you the second thing was prayer to seek guidance third was reflection on scripture fourth was solitude and solitude is is uh, to me is very very similar to reflection on scripture But in their their, their vernacular, it's when you're really, you're allowing the Holy Spirit to really talk to you. You're trying to listen to the Lord as opposed to reflecting on Scripture is really thinking and meditating on the Word. So that's the distinction they made there. And then fifth was evangelism, where you're beginning to share your faith with others. So those are the top five catalysts of the second movement. Now the third movement, you see the top catalysts are, number one, giving my life away. This is about generational transfer. Those of you who are familiar with that term? It's about finding somebody that you can give what's what's in you to them. You know, the wonderful thing about riches in the kingdom is that if I give you what I have, then we both have it. If I give you a dollar bill, you have it and I don't have it. That's the difference. That's why spiritual riches are so valuable. So these people in in this this highest category got a revelation of giving away what God had put into them. Secondly, they recognized Christ is first. Christ is the focal point. Every decision is about Christ. Thirdly, they recognized their identity in Christ. Fourthly, the authority of Scripture. And fifthly, the reflection on Scripture. So you can see those again are the top five. Now you see there are other elements that played into it. But, but in each category they tried to identify the five most significant factors that, that, that facilitated the movements into the various phases of growth. So that's what that's all about. Now all of this data is from the book Follow Me by Greg Hawkins and Callie Parkinson. It's available in the website there is a, for you to look at. What they concluded was, hands down, there is one factor that facilitates growth Way above anything else. And that is the Bible. The Bible facilitates growth in Christ like nothing else. Now that surprised them. That surprised them. You see, now turn over to the back. Just go down to the third, third thing there where it says false assumptions made commonly made by local church leaders. Notice the first bullet there. It says Willow Creek. This is very important. Willow Creek says they made an assumption about church. And that assumption was that if you participate with us, then you will grow in Christ. Now, for what I can tell, and I, I I don't have data other than my own experience, but I've talked to a number of church leaders over my my life, and what I see consistently is that assumption is made I, I was playing golf with, uh, with the executive pastor for one of the big mega churches here in Dallas a couple of years ago and when I had that opportunity, you, any of y'all in megachurches? I don't want to offend any megachurch people. You know, I, I always struggle a bit with megachurches. Uh, and so we're, we're, I wait till an opportune time because I want to find out his definition of success. I said, hey, what's success? Chunk. Then he comes out, and I'm talking about success in the context of the church. He said, participation. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, what about discipleship? He said, well, we can't measure that. So they just given up on it. Because the driving agenda there is an, this assumption that Willow Creek had made. If you participate with us, then you will grow in Christ. You will become a disciple. Well, what Willow Creek is saying is that is a false presupposition. That is not true. That's a big, major point of their research that they discovered. So I want to challenge you. What I've discovered, when I took that back to my own church, and we're not a megachurch, we... We're, what, 600 people, 700 people, something like that. When I began to look at our church, I began to realize, you know, we make that same assumption too. We do those kinds of things. We, we have all these different groups and different ways to connect, all these programs, just like the megachurch. It's just a smaller version of the megachurch. And we're assuming if you'll connect with us, in some way you'll grow. See, and this is the this is thing we've got to get to is understanding how do people really grow. And what Willow Creek concluded was the greatest way consistently for people to grow is to get them in the word of god that's what will bring transformation okay look at the top of that page on the back there major conclusions for follow me okay number one is christ-centered people have tremendous unrealized potential christ-centered people have tremendous unrealized potential now i'm going to give you another graph here Uh, this is just more data from the book but it's showing you this graph is only for the highest category, the Christ-centered people. Okay? It's looking at how they are responding to God, how they pray, their belief about the Bible, their reflection on Scripture, willingness to give up their life for Christ, and how they love others. And I just want you to look at the data points that they came up with, because this will probably surprise you. You know, most of us think that if a person is committed to Christ, he's committed to Christ. Well, they discovered that wasn't really true. People say they're committed to Christ that are not committed to Christ. Uh, most of us think that somebody that's fully committed to Christ would, would absolutely believe in the authority of Scripture. Well, they found that wasn't true either, that only 80% of them were. Probably the, the greatest uh, ch- uh, challenge for them was the discovery about how, how the most committed people love others. And they found out that only 30% really are sold out at loving others. Now see, these are, these are startling things. Now this reflects what, this is Bill Heibel's comment. If you, when you read the book, Bill Hybels does the afterword to the book. And that's one of the first things you want to read, is what, read what he says. And this is, this was his conclusion. He's looking at this data here. Okay? Now I made up this chart, but the data that's in this chart is all in the book, and you can see where you can find that data. And he's looking at this data and saying there's something wrong with our Christ-centered people you know this is not a good picture These people are way underperforming they don't get it it makes you wonder is there another category beyond christ-centered that we haven't seen here because you would think a christ-centered person that they would be pagan across here everybody that claims to be christ-centered they would absolutely hundred percent would love god hundred percent would pray daily for guidance 100% would believe the Bible's authoritative, 100% would reflect on Scripture daily, 100% would be willing to give up everything for Christ, and 100% would love others. Wouldn't you expect that? Yeah. So that's, see, that's where he's, we're looking at this saying, whoa, man, there's something really off here. And I think he's very correct. The next thing he noted there, under major conclusions from Follow Me, was that the Bible is by far the most powerful catalyst for spiritual growth. Hands down. Nothing's even close to the Bible. Now, here's some other conclusions. The following were not significant catalysts for growth. Now, this may surprise you. Journaling, devotional materials, music, books, radio messages, websites. None of those were major catalysts for growth. Now, they they might help. But if you are trying to, to effectively disciple people using these tools you will probably not be very efficient at it now it's very important i don't know if you guys noticed that that music was not even listed anywhere on the first page did anybody notice that and one of the things that i'm i'm observing about the charismatic world that that i'm in right now is there's a huge emphasis on music there's em- enormous amounts of resources time resources talent resources and as well as treasure going into this. You know, making CDs and doing big productions and all this stuff. And I'm saying, well, where's music in all this? Well, it doesn't appear that music is a huge factor. Now, for me personally, I enjoy certain music. I'm not into the heavy metal stuff. I haven't gotten there yet. But, but, but I do enjoy certain music, and it stimulates in me, you know, responses. And I appreciate yes, that. But what really causes me to grow is when the Holy Spirit you know, leaps off the pages of Scripture with some truth. Man, it brings transformation to me, new resolve, new dedication, and maybe even new muscle memory, something I need to start doing differently in my life. That's what really brings the change. So they were kind of surprised that all these other things, See, because they were big at trying to encourage all these. They had all these devotional materials in their bookstore, and, you know, be sure you read your morning devotional, all that kind of stuff. Well, now what they're saying is, get in the Bible. Get in the Bible, get in a Bible study, get a mentor to work with you to teach you the Word of God. Okay, the next thing, that the other conclusion they follow is, after movement number one, church activities were not significant toward facilitating maturity in Christ. Now that, I think, really, really hurt them. You know, and it's it's convicting when you stop and think about that. What they basically said was the church served as an on-ramp to get people engaged in Christianity. And once they got engaged... The church did not provide the venue, the facilities, the resources to enable people to really grow to maturity in Christ. People are growing up in Christ largely based on other things they're doing outside of the church. Next thing, movement from close to Christ to Christ-centered is growth in intimacy with God. Now, if you notice back on the chart, you notice how... In group, the movement here, the Close to Christ group here, you notice the top three things that move them were down here in personal spiritual practices. You see that? That's training. That's muscle memory stuff. You know, learning to, to pray, to seek guidance, reflecting on scripture, learning to hear the Holy Spirit. Those are muscle memory stuff. Once you kind of get that in your muscle memory, then notice how things go up to the spiritual beliefs and attitudes. Okay? Now what's happening is your mind is being transformed. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Okay, that's what's happening up here. That's when you really begin to think with a biblical worldview. And as my brother said here, you begin to make every decision for Christ. You've got to get that thinking. Well, see, the only the highest group was beginning to think that way. So that's the challenge is we've got to get people into that third, that, that, through the third movement to the Christ Center to get them to think biblically. You know, I note that 90% of the people in this country are theists according to the Baylor University survey done a couple of years ago. Some of you may have seen that result. Ninety percent are theists, the vast majority of those theists profess to be Christians. So my contention is Christians put Obama into office. Right? And my thesis is it's Christians who don't understand a biblical worldview put him in office because it, it seems that very few Christians ever get to this Christ-centered stage. Now, here's, a, here's something that the, the, the statistician said. Since the survey is a snapshot in time, the catalyst for growth may actually be attributes that reflect the growth. What they're saying is, you know, we've studied the results of our survey and we've made these conclusions that I've shown you on this first page, but they're now pointing out that, well, maybe our conclusions are not as correct as we think because maybe they're, what, these, what these attributes are are the characteristics of a person who has gone through that movement, maybe they aren't the catalyst to do the movement. So what they're saying is we're not totally sure of our conclusion. I think that's wisdom to be, to hold on to that loosely and say, okay, maybe we've missed something here, because I think they have missed something, and I'm going to point that out to you in a second. Now, under false assumptions, I read to you the first one. Let me just read to you uh, my observation. And this comes from my working with pastors. And I've had a number of pastors I work with as a consultant, and they've asked me to come in, work with their elder team, help them do a strategic plan, or, you know, work through issues, those kinds of things. And what I have found invariably in working with pastors is a presupposition that winds up leading to a block. And that presupposition is, as a pastor, you have to touch everybody in the congregation. Now, I'll tell you how this began, I became really aware of this was we had one of our young leaders in my church come up to me and say, I want to thank you for talking to me. I said, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> i talk to anybody. No, he said, no, no, no. You stop, you look me in the eye, and you focus on me, and you talk to me. I said, okay, that's, that's what I want to do. He said, that's so good. He says, the other leaders around here don't do that. I said, really? He said, no, they don't. Now, that's 100, not 100% true. What he's saying is most of the other leaders don't do that. So I began to watch them. You know, I would I would go out after our service. We have a pretty big four-year area, so I'd just kind of watch and see what they did, and I began to see what he was talking about. What they're doing is running around saying hi to everybody and not stopping to talk to anybody. See, now what that is, that's a presupposition that i got to touch everybody. Now, I was in, I was asked to come in and do some uh, training for an elder team here uh, about, about a year ago and um, this presupposition really came glaring out in that session because we're talking about the struggles and the challenges of this leadership team and at one point I just had just I just stopped and said, okay guys, do we all agree the game is discipleship? Yeah that's the game. okay so I just wrote down the names of each one of the elders you know on the board which included the senior pastor and then I put three lines under each name. I said, do we all agree that Jesus is a great model for discipleship? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a great model. That's what we want to follow. Uh, Well, Do we all agree that Jesus focused on three men? Peter, James, and John. Do we all agree that? Yeah, yeah. He touched other people, but he focused. He took those three men into his most intimate settings. The transfiguration, for example. That's That's who he had with him in the most intimate times of his life. He was really pouring everything he could into those three. So I said, I want you guys to identify your Peter, James, and John to me. So here I am, right Ryan the board. And what do you think I found? Nobody had anybody. Because they were all busy touching everybody. See, so that's why I'm saying here, my observation is, is pastors, you will not be effective in the kingdom of God If you're trying to touch everybody, you will be effective if you do what Jesus did. Pick your Peter, James, and John and pour yourself into them. By the way, I noticed that Peter, James, and John were picked by Jesus. They did not pick Jesus. Very important point. survey may be skewed since it is a self-analysis by respondents. You know, basically, it was a survey out there on these church websites. And if you're, you know, anybody could go out there. In fact, I discovered that my pastor actually went on the website of another church and responded to the survey. I said, you skewed the survey. He said, oh, I was curious, and it was out there, so I just did it. Okay, the next one is, churches appear to be reasonably effective at evangelism, but are not highly effective at making disciples. Thirdly, Christ-centered people are not well supported at local churches, and therefore tend to leave. Okay, that is exactly what Barna's theory is. Those of you who have read The Revolutionaries. And I know Barney has got mixed reviews out there right now. But he he's posited something that seems to be happening. Uh, how many of you are following the house church movement? Okay. The last data point I saw on that was that approximately 20% of the Christian community is involved in a house church. Okay. Are you all aware of that? It's actually gotten the Baptists really concerned because they're, they're, seeing, they're seeing a flattening and a drop-off in their Attendance as well as their revenue. Christ-centered people are not well supported local churches. Next one, growth happens progressively through personal learning and adopting a biblical world view. That's how people grow. They engage in learning the Word of God and it becoming incarnate in them. Training and then beginning to transform the mind. That's what really facilitates growth. Kingdom work is defined primarily in terms of evangelism, that is their definition. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that is not a correct definition. Okay? And finally, the most mature people are underperforming, and I think it's because of dualism and lack of spiritual mentoring. There is a chart on page 45 in the book where it shows uh, the number of people that have spiritual mentors across the categories. And basically, the line is flat, and it's around 10%. Only 1 in 10 claims to have a spiritual mentor. And my experience with that is that probably is not really a mentor. It's probably just somebody you call a close friend. I think probably it's probably 1 in a 100 that have a real spiritual mentor. And it's a sad reality. Okay, I I have three suggestions for you. Okay, number one, reject dualism. Now I'm assuming all of you guys know what dualism is. Dualism is the bifurcation of physical and spiritual reality. Dualism says physical reality is not relevant to God. Although God made the physical universe and he called it very good. So dualism is inherently, I think, inconsistent with scripture. Dualism says there's no call of God except to, quote, vocational ministry. As you go through the book and you read it, you see over and over again, their idea of ministry is all about evangelism. They have no sense of people doing the work of the kingdom outside of the local church so i my my thesis is reject dualism embrace holism because we have been charged to bring the kingdom the rule and reign of god on this earth as it is in heaven so that's number one okay number two we need to focus on making spiritual sons and daughters that is disciples not monuments we make monuments when we build buildings we focus on buildings we focus on attendance, we focus on budgets, we focus on programs, those are all about monuments. I actually was at a, at a meeting a couple of years ago, uh, this was a 20-year celebration of a church, and uh, in the course of this celebration, they were showing a vision for 20 years forward. And they showed a PowerPoint presentation. And a PowerPoint presentation was all about the building what the building's going to look like in 20 years there was not a single picture of a person not a single reference you know to making disciples of Christ it was all about the building that's a monument that if that's your legacy if a building is your legacy that's not a legacy a legacy is a son that's a legacy a son, I'm not talking about male or female. I'm talking about someone you pour your spiritual DNA into. So may I suggest that the focus of our lives needs to be making sons and daughters and training them in the kingdom work. And finally, disciple people like Jesus did. Find your Peter, James, and John and pour yourself into those, those people. And that's how you will bring transformation to this world. Acts 19 I was reading it a few months ago, and I just I saw something that I had never seen before. And I've taught the book of Acts several times, and I had not seen this before. This is a story about Paul at Ephesus. Remember, he's at Ephesus, and he finds these, uh, these disciples of Apollos, and of course, they don't fully understand the baptism of Jesus. So he explains it. He them, they baptizes them. They, the Holy Spirit comes on them. You have all these things going on. And so, at great, great event. You know, we all know that, that text. Then it goes on to say that he went into the synagogue to preach the kingdom of God. By the way, that's what Jesus, what Paul preached, is the kingdom of God. So he's sharing the kingdom of God to the Jews. The Jews are rejecting him. So he he says, okay, fine. You don't want it? I'll go someplace else. So he goes back to these 12 disciples of Apollos. He says, hey, guys, do you want to know the kingdom of God? He said, hey, we're there. So then it says, every day for two years they met and he taught them the kingdom of God. Now you talk about a seminary, that had to be a seminary. Then what startled me is what I saw next. This is what I had missed. It says, after he got through that two years teaching them, it, it says, and so then, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. You see, evangelism happened through discipleship. You got those 12 people so infected with Christ They couldn't stand it. And, you know, you may remember that Paul had been forbidden to go into Asia. Remember that? He'd not been allowed to go into Asia. This is how God was going to evangelize Asia, was through Paul's sons. So that, to me, is a great picture. If we focus on, on making sons, pouring the kingdom of God into our sons, we will create the greatest evangelistic tool that this world has ever known. So, Lord, give us the grace to do that.